Hello, my fellow hemp nuts and cannabis enthusiasts. Welcome to the new Hemp Times podcast recorded at Gotham Studios, the sweetest smelling podcast studio in the world. Hey. Yeah. Today's episode is brought to you by Madison Square Partners at ecshealth.com. Madison Square Partners is a holding company and consulting group for the cannabis industry. MSP believes the endocannabinoid system is the gateway to health. MSP is a global company invested in utilizing the power of the endocannabinoid system. Madison Square Partners is a global corporation which is focusing on the endocannabinoid system and its impact on health and well-being. This unique corporation brings years of experience in clinical research, patient care, and health and wellness. The core values at Madison Square Partners is to leverage their varied exper- expertise through creating mission-driven business opportunities aimed at creating health and wellness for people across the globe in a socially conscious and deliberate way. Holy cow, how long does this thing last? For more information, <laughs> check them out at ecsforhealth.com. Thank you, MSP, for making this show possible. Absolutely. Thank right. you. Today on the show, we have the unapologetic sharecropper, Randy Cameron. Hey, hey. And we also have, joining us again, Stacia Woodcock, Farm D, an expert on women's health and cannabis. Hello. Thanks yeah. for having me. I'm so yeah. happy right. to be back. Back in the building. Back We're in the so building. so happy to have you back. <laughs> and our host for today is our licensed clinical social worker, Dr. Jen Roberts. Ah, oh, thank Dr. you, thank Jan. you, thank you. Hey guys, hope you're doing well at home mm. or on your in your car or at work. Um, but today we're going to do something a little bit different today. So obviously Greer is not here with us today, but uh, we have, as Jay Han, as Dr. Marku mentioned, uh, Dr. Stacia Woodcock. She is a PharmD, and we're going to ask her today about what is a PharmD, what are the medical cannabis programs in these states? Do they all have PharmDs? Do they not? We're going to kind of drill in very deeply about what is right for the patients. Because here at New Hemp Times, we've been talking a lot about cannabis use, but really with our focus on health and well-being and making sure that we have a great place. So without further ado, I would like to kind of get you, you know, for our listeners, Stacia, I, I'm sure people would love to know kind of about you and your background and, and what does what is a PharmD, basically? Yeah, so a PharmD stands for Doctor of Pharmacy. Mm-hmm. And uh, there used to be two separate degrees for pharmacists. There used to be registered pharmacists, and then the Doctor of Pharmacy was a more advanced degree. And over the years, um, the pharmacists became much more clinically integrated into patient care. And so to, they phased out the registered pharmacist degree. And now, all pharmacists are PharmD doctor of pharmacy degrees. And that means that we have um, typically around five years of dedicated pharmacy school. Um, and I love wow. I love to talk about it because I think a lot of patients and doctors, honestly, when I talk to practitioners and you, you say you're a pharmacist, they think that you count pills, right. <laughs> that you go to school for that many years to count right. pills. I'm like, wow, if it took me that long to figure out how to count, I'd be in a whole lot of trouble. So <laughs> what do you think I do for the rest of these years? And so um, I think it's really important to understand that when you go to a pharmacy, and this is any pharmacy, when someone has a PharmD, 
we're clinically trained the same way that a medical doctor is. So we have to learn physiology, pharmacology, biology for every disease state. So we have to learn exactly how diseases work in right. the body. And where the differentiation lies is that for clinicians, they then learn how to diagnose, right? right? right. They have to learn with this disease state, what are the symptoms? What's right. the patient history? How do I we figure out how to diagnose a differential them? diagnosis. Exactly. For the right. pharmacist, we focus on treatment. Right. So we have to learn about every different treatment modality that it that there is from um, nutritional to herbals to supplements to pharmaceuticals, how they work in the body, how they interact in the body, what the different um, drug interactions are, the different um, contraindications and precautions for different patient populations, for age, for weight, for gender. There are all these different things for every single pharmaceutical out there. So when you look behind the pharmacy counter and you see all of those bottles, the pharmacist knows clinically exactly how every single one of those wow. interacts with your body. Oh, wow. Yeah, so it's a lot. Is, so this is a graduate degree. <laughs> it is a doctoral degree. Right, yeah, right. Yeah, so after your degree. regular, it's an advanced degree. Mm -hmm. After your regular four years of college, you go for that. Yep, and for some, you can do like two years of prerequisites and then do the, the PharmD the program. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So for like a regular PhD program, you need to like, you know, in the sciences, you have to publish something or do a research project. Do the pharmacists have to do something similar like that, no. like a thesis? No. So pharmacists work more like uh, medical doctors. We right. do residencies. So we right. have to have a certain number of residency hours in different specialties. Um and have that observational work, like internships, basically. And then some pharmacists, after they get their PharmD, can then go on and do a clinical residency in their specialty, mm -hmm. like a general one and then a specialty one. So you can become like an advanced pediatric PharmD or wow. ambulatory care or emergency care. There's a lot of different specialties. Yeah. You said it was a five-year program? It depends on where you go. Mm -hmm. My particular program was two-year undergrad prerequisite and then four-year doctoral program. So it was six years total. So are you in class with uh, your first two years of medical students? That are nope. It's, it's just farm, and I'm sure that differ, differs based on school. the you know the school. different school. Yeah, mm -hmm. how they organize it. For the most part, you're just with pharmacy can, students. Can I ask yeah. another question? Is yeah. it really difficult to get into a farm D yes. program? Yeah, it's very it's very rigorous. You have to take a PCAT, just like the MCAT, um, which is an exam that's sort of like you know uh, the advanced level SAT, ACT that's based towards pharmaceutical science, and then after that you do an interview process. So it's very competitive. So what kind of like pre qualifications as far as like academics go in order to get into a Yeah, I mean, most of the programs have prerequisites. So you have mm -hmm. to take advanced organic chemistry, biology, anatomy, physics, uh, math. All the stuff for stupid people. <laughs> <laughs> Jay so, you have a question? Yeah. Um, when you were going, entering into, you know, pharmacist school, uh, what was the biggest misconception, misconception you had that was like totally blown after you took school? Like, wow, I didn't know pharmacists had to do this or learn this. Well, so for me, my dad is a pharmacist <laughs> oh, wow. and my mom is a nurse. So I was very well versed, but, yeah. um, I will say my dad is a registered pharmacist. He's not a PharmD. And so what he did, I did not know all the different opportunities that there were for pharmacists. I knew retail. You know, mm -hmm. I knew Walgreens, CVS. You know, right. that's what I knew. I did. That's what most people think mm -hmm. of. Yeah. Right? Yeah. And, you know, in, in my program, I was very lucky. I went to the University of Kentucky and they have one of the top pharmacy schools in the country. And, um, because of how Kentucky is, it's very rural. 
Right. And in rural communities like that, pharmacists have a lot more power because they we're do. the most accessible healthcare providers. Because there's such a shortage of healthcare professionals exactly. in these medically exactly. underserved areas. And so in school, I was able to, in my rounds with the clinical team, write chart notes for hospital patients on any drugs that were monitored pharmacokinetically. So there are certain drugs that you have to take blood levels and based on that, do a whole lot of complicated math to figure out if you're on the right dose and then adjust the dose accordingly. And, you know, certain antibiotic seizure meds, things like that. And typically what would happen is the pharmacist would do all those calculations and then tell the doctor what to do. And then the doctor would then order the change. Wow. Well, in, in Kentucky, I was able to order that change. I had the power as the pharmacist because I knew how to manage that medicine clinically. And that that was my training. Oh, and so wow. we were empowered to do that. Well, I'm sure people who are listening, they're wondering, is this an episode about PharmD? <laughs> yeah. Right? Right. And and here at New Hemp Times, we're so, you know, we're so um, concerned about making sure that our listeners, but that we're all really great consumers. And, and the reason that we wanted to have you on today, and again, thank you so much for being here, was that I, I had this crazy experience. So I have had a medical uh, cannabis card in two different states, one in Delaware and one in New York. And the experiences of these two different states are so different. And the entire experience of the dispensary, the education, and, and, and Dr. Marku and I, we work with applications with people who are interested in creating dispensaries. So we help them kind of, con, you know, construct what their applications should look like, what the employee education should look like, patient education, all that stuff. So this as a consumer, and granted, I'm someone who knows a little bit more than, you know, uh, someone who's never used before. Um, when I walked in, I couldn't believe the role of the PharmD. It mm-hmm. was, it, it really made me take stock at what are these laws going on state to state, how different they are and how people don't understand the different kinds of care they're getting in each state. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, so. I'm, I'm really proud that New York requires a pharmacist in the dispensary mm-hmm. because I think first and foremost, we all believe that, I mean, and cannabis is many things, but one of the things it is, is medicine. Right. And so when we talk about patient care, there are drug interactions that have to be considered. There are um, dosing modalities and lifestyle and all these other things that need to be taken into account to really serve a patient properly. And I think that's where that advanced degree in having a pharmacist in the dispensary really is of benefit, not just to the patient, right? Because when the patient comes in, they ha- they have that feeling of comfort and trust, like they're mm-hmm. used to talking to pharmacists about medication. Right. And so they trust us with their full medical history. So that's really important for the patient. But it's also really important for the practitioners, right. because we don't learn about cannabis in medical school. And that's slowly changing. Thank well, I goodness. Think, I think the stats are like what less than 10% of medical schools are teaching about the endocannabinoids. Exactly. System. And more more pharmacy schools are starting to right. do it now too. Randy, so having you? the most outstanding PharmD pharmacist in a dispensary, um, how common is that around the country right now? And how in tune are th- is their experience in what they've learned about cannabis in yeah. school? And how does that apply to 
disseminating information to your regular person that walks in? Yeah, no, that's a great question. So right now, um, there are five states um, that have the requirement of having a pharmacist in the dispensary. New York's one of them. Um, Also, Arkansas, Connecticut, Pennsylvania, and Minnesota is the last one. So only five. So when we think, I think there are what, like 35 states now with medical programs? Only five require a pharmacist. Yeah, yeah. I would interject um, that there are some dispensaries that voluntarily have made pharmacists or their health professionals available to make those counseling, but it's, but it's not something that's very common. Even today, we encountered yep. a dispensary operator who has, uh, I don't know what they're called, wellness agents. Or that, counselors. And-, <laughs> and they have no health professional training background. They're paid minimum wage. Which is fine, but they could have no, training. I think they were making fifteen an hour. Well, which yeah. is minimum wage here in New right. York. Yeah. yeah. So I think the the big differentiator, and I'm certainly not going to tell you that every pharmacist that graduates from pharmacy school is going to understand <laughs> cannabis the way that I do. Right? I've done my due diligence. <laughs> like, and we're going to get into that. In a <laughs> yeah. <minute>. Exactly. <laughs> so, but what we do have is the aptitude for understanding medical applications of new things. So we understand physiology. We understand how receptor systems work in the body. And most importantly, we understand all of the other medications a patient is taking. And see, and that's where I'm concerned because I don't think patients really understand that there's this whole underlying physiological system. And we've talked about this here on the podcast Mm -hmm. about the endocannabinoid system. And so I don't think that a lot of people really understand that it's not just that you're smoking weed, you're actually getting medicine that is physiologically changing you. Exactly. And, and, and what the mechanisms behind that are. Yeah. And I mean, so the additional part of a PharmD training is consultation and counseling training. Um, Mm -hmm. all the states require pharmacists to counsel patients on new medications. So we're trained to be able to pull information out of patients, to take a good patient history, and to be able to communicate complicated medical information in a really accessible and understandable way. And that's a huge advantage for patients. Right. So from your experience base, if you were to walk into, if you were to give in a grant to audit the dispensaries around oh, the country. please give it to me. I, I know. would do it tomorrow. <laughs> what percentage, <laughs> and, and you're, you're, you know, you're listening on the advice that they give, the, the what, what percentage of dispensaries do you think are functioning at that level where they're really in tune with being, you know, the, the treatments that these folks are coming into and where the advice won't make their symptoms worse. Right. Exactly. Yeah. (laughs) Well, I, 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 before I do want you to answer that question because I'm going to tell you about a case of mine that this actually happened with a patient. She had gone to one of the dispensaries in one of the States that does not require a farm D she was given a piece of paper that just had the different varieties available along with conditions. They might, or not conditions, but symptoms they might help, might help. And she was taking, um, at the advice of the patient care agent or bud tender, whatever you want to call it, a, a strain or variety that actually activated her. This was a woman with PTSD mm-hmm. who had severe trauma, highly anxious. She was taking a benzodiazepine with that. She was taking, um, I can't remember if it was Clonopin or Xanax with it because she became just way too anxious on the cannabis. So she had this, yeah, to try to bring her back. And so she didn't get the medical advice that she needed 
And of course, that state doesn't require it, but the patient outcomes are the thing. So that I think your question, Randy, is great because I want to hear what you have to say, but I've seen it myself. It scares the hell out of me what when I have. I actually, and I have to be very careful here um, because I can't counsel anyone on use, but I educated her on the different um, varieties and that she should not be using um, something that would actually exacerbate her anxiety mm-hmm. and that there are certain cannabinoids that will help and what she needed, you know, what I have to be careful here because I had to educate her about what it looks like. And I couldn't tell her what she could do and what she couldn't do. Exactly. Because I'm not licensed to do that. Right. I mean, and we, so, I feel like we talked about this, um, on the women's health segment when we, they yeah. did the survey on, on yeah. pa- pregnant patients yeah. and yep. what dispensary said. And I feel like the large majority gave inappropriate advice or, um, yep. inaccurate or tr- gave medical advice that they were not qualified to give. So I, I definitely think it's a huge problem in the industry right now. I mean, I hesitate to give you a percentage on how many are doing it wrong, but yeah. I will tell you, I think there aren't that many really doing it completely right. Completely right. And I will say we were on a call today and and it was about what the money is and the profit margin is in a sense. And, and I understand that, but we're talking about patient care. Absolutely. And, you know, to be super real, pharmacists are expensive. I know. You know, we're not cheap to have in the pharmacy. And how much so, do they usually make a year? We start at six figures, low yeah. six figures. Yeah. And that's not cheap. No, not cheap. Uh, at especially all. when most medical dispensaries yeah. are operating in the red to begin with. You know right. what I mean? And they're paying $15 an hour to exactly. have most employees. Exactly. So they don't need you in there right. blowing their books up, but. <laughs> Hey, you know, we need real service. So, and I think like a good example of this is, um, one of the contraindications that, uh, you know, we talk about a lot with cannabis is if you have unstable ischemic heart disease. So if you have any sort of underlying um, heart arrhythmia or issue, you should not be using mm-hmm. at least a THC containing cannabis because it can exacerbate those underlying issues because it causes some tachycardia or increased mm-hmm. heart rate. Um, now, say you have a patient that comes into the dispensary and the dispensary associates trained, right? And they're like, do you have ischemic heart disease? And the patient says, no. Right. And then you ask, are you on any other medications? And they said, well, yeah, I'm on amiodarone. I'm on verapamil and a couple other things. I know that's an immediate trigger for me. You have underlying heart disease because you would not be on those medications right. if you didn't. Right. Now you are like, what the heck is amiodarone? I have no idea what that is. It's like, in, you know, the average dispensary associate. So you patients are the most unreliable historians of their own medical history. Even heart. Even heart. I Jeez. mean, there, there are things. I mean, you ask patients what medication they're taking and it's like the blue pill, the pink pill, oh. and then the white one to help me sleep. They don't know what it is. They don't mm. know what it's for. Half the time. I mean, there's a huge area of pharmacy right now called medical therapy um, management where you just talk to patients to figure out what they're taking if they're on two different things for one disease state and all this, these different things. So patients don't know. Yeah. Yep. And, and, you know, Randy, to, to fill out your question a little bit more, according to research on a study entitled Training and Practices of Cannabis Dispensary Staff, published like about two years ago, mm-hmm. they did a survey like that. And only 20% of the dispensary staff that they surveyed had any medical background or training, um, yet 94% of them get, were giving out advice for specific conditions mm-hmm. that cannabis could use. And what came right. out of that was that, well, they're making recommendations for things that cannabis has not been shown to be effective for. 
which could exacerbate it almost, symptoms. It almost like it, it cheapens the whole dispensary experience. <laughs> I mean, to be quite honest with you, because then it, it, it levels it out with a traditional recreational dispensary mm-hmm. kind of thing. Yeah, absolutely. I, I, Which I, is what most of them really are. are. If you think about absolutely. it, that's what they are. Absolutely. I mean, I, the I, knowledge just isn't there yet. So, so let's talk about this for a second. So we have different states with different guidelines and different rules. We've talked about that only five out of 35, if we have our numbers right, uh, because it changes daily. I know it, feels it does. Like, <laughs> um, that, only so basically one seventh of all states that have legal medical cannabis programs only require PharmDs there. Mm-hmm. That is scary. So that means basically six sevenths of them do not. Exactly. So we have people who have high school education, maybe college isn't even a requirement for these kinds of positions, mm-hmm. and that they're basically providing guidance to patients, typically with multiple system issues. Mm-hmm. On their medical cannabis usage. And I certainly, I don't, I don't want to discount, um, all of the dispensary associates because there are some people out there that know so much and are so well educated. That's not what I'm trying to know. But I'll also say, um, without that clinical background, you're also not able to, to read studies and know if the information's accurate. And that's a huge portion of clinical training is that there's so much misinformation and um, studies out there that you read and it looks great on paper. But when you really dig deeper, it's 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 very misleading or false information. And without the skills to learn how to evaluate studies properly, that can lead to a lot of unintentional misinformation being disseminated out to patients. And when, when I lived in California and I was working in labs and doing research, I also worked as a bud tender for licensed dispensaries in California. And, you know, I was one of those go-getters. I would actually bring in studies about cannabis tea to discuss with patients. But I, I drew a line at recommending varieties for conditions, but I would walk them through the research and provide them data. But again, that wasn't part of my training. That was kind of my own initiative. And it got to a point where what one dispensary manager thought I was like giving away free product because patients were asking for me, but it was just because I could point them to resources that would help answer their questions mm-hmm. or information they could share to their doctor. One patient was like, I need studies to share with my doctor about why I should continue using cannabis. So giving them the information. And there's plenty yeah. of need for these patient care advocates. So I'm not trying to anyone. I'm just talking about people who are using this for medical, um, medical, you know, use that they might have potentially drug drug interactions mm-hmm. going on. Yeah. You know what I mean? Or, or maybe they don't know how to use this. Absolutely. I was shocked in the dispensary um, yesterday when I went into it. I uh, met with a PharmD, and and it was such a pleasant experience. It was very, you know, it was HIPAA-focused and making sure that I had my privacy as a patient and they could had, they had some space to kind of really provide consultation to me. And I just mentioned, and it kind of freaked me out at first, that it seems like in New York they actually have access to all of the dispensary information. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And I know that's not, in other states where we've talked about it, that's not existing. So they know or you go oh, in yeah. and shop in around we have You're to here in new york yeah. yeah yeah it's it it keeps you there's a limit to how much you can purchase so it goes into the right. prescription monitoring program so when you come in we know if you've gone somewhere else and how much you've you've gotten but, but it was fascinating because i mentioned the fact that i had been experiencing a lot of anxiety lately and the reality is i know you know it was just working a lot just a lot of projects going on 
And I love that he was able to say, well, I see that you had purchased this last time and this last time. Maybe that's something that might be exacerbating this. And we need to kind of, I would recommend this instead because Mm -hmm. of this issue and this, you know, it, it was fascinating to me. And as a consumer, that's what we need. Absolutely. No, absolutely. <laughs> Especially since it can't be prescribed by physicians. So uh, just as an old school uh, cultivator yeah, and where my knowledge base comes from, uh, I tend to have conversations with po- people where their experience base in, in, in cannabis could come from different areas than cultivating. Yep. Um, and it's not to say it's less, but it's different from a cult. And I like to liken a cultivate, a, a real grower that has some experience in the past 20 years and the evolution of what's going on and the strains that's come popular. Um, I've had conversations with medical folks that have a different approach mm-hmm. to, um, strains that have been around for a while that people have, have dialed in and really grown well. Mm-hmm. Um, and, from the cultivation side, you might just have indigo sativas and the basic general descriptions of the effects that you get from them. Mm-hmm. Um, and I guess where I'm getting is that in fine tuning language that transfers from pharma D to uh, what grower Jane Doe, or- Jane, <laughs> Jane Doe and however the, 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 the cultivators describe, yeah. how do we tighten that? Because yeah. that's what's going to be separate from the recreational thing where people are like, just give me something that lays me on the couch. Right. Yeah, 100%. You know, how do we- so cultivars is the first step of that, right? So when you talk about you know the cultivar of plant, mm-hmm. but then it has to drill will, down. Will you explain that to our listeners? Mm-hmm. Yeah, cultivar is like right. the appropriate term for strain. <laughs> <laughs> or variety. <laughs> or variety, yeah. Um, there's all these different uh, vocabulary words, I guess, that there, we use. There are strains of bacteria. There are strains of, in your arm. There are varieties and cultivars of cannabis. There we go. <laughs> <laughs> Thank nice. you very much Word for that. Word of the day. That should be our word of the day, cultivar. So <laughs> the cultivar is the, the first thing, right? Indica sativa is typically the second. Mm-hmm. And then we look at ratio of THC to CBD mm-hmm. and terpene profile. Mm-hmm. And it's that entire picture that well, gives the- And that's f- not the, even, let's be honest. Well, that's not CBG, even, CBD yeah. and THCB. Let's yeah. talk right. about cannabinoids. Like we're not quite ready there. for that yet. Right. Yeah. Um, but yeah, so it's it's the entire composition. You can't just say this is an indica yep. or a sativa. And I, and that's, that's one of the biggest problems, I think, because- I, yeah. Is that people yeah. think they have this belief that if it's an indica, it's going to affect me this way. If it's a sativa, it's going to affect me this way. But there are so many other exactly. variables. Mm-hmm. And it's also a lack of, uh, if you're talking about uh, culinary arts, there's so much description in how herbs and foods work together mm-hmm. and it's been known. So it's a well-seasoned, this like, area, it's... Uh, it's fascinating, mm-hmm. you know, and, and you bring that up, uh, Randy, because I think that some states, and again, New York doesn't allow whole flour, which is just 
unreal to Mm me. Um, But like I know uh, as we were talking about with New Jersey today that they allow you to smell. So you can do your own Mm -hmm. organoleptic testing Mm -hmm. of the product to Mm -hmm. smell it, to see how you react to it, to smell the terpenoids. And Delaware, you can't. So you never know what it smells like. It's already prepackaged. There's no way you can smell it. You just guess. Mm -hmm. And so this is what we're dealing with across the country, different states with different processes. Who doesn't smell their food? Right. Well, I don't go to McDonald's. Right, well, but first well, we know well, it. You know, I guess know. what I would say well, that's is, not food, right. but <laughs> do you smell your medicine? No, but I think when you stereotypically think about cannabis, the mm-hmm. first thing you do is. Well, and let me. I did say a great that. job. I, I think that's a great question. I have is there is a belief that um, you know the terpenes that you're attracted to essentially are the terpenes that are going to work for you in the cannabis. And so I'm curious if you even think, you know, if you think that, or have you ever heard of that before? Yeah. I mean, I, I, I mean, as a clinician, um, I look at, at terpenes as essential oils. Like there is good clinical evidence for their use. Um, unfortunately in New York, we're limited, um, to oil extracts and we at, at, at least at Curaleaf, we add the um, the natural terpenes back in to all mm-hmm. of our oil extracts because we know that that's really important. But the state restricts us as far as being able to communicate to the patients what they are, right? And really? so, yeah. Um, what do you mean? They like, tell you, you we are not allowed to talk about what cultivar is being used because they want it to be very clinical and medical and based on THC and CBD only. They don't want anyone talking about cultivars or terpenes. Yeah. It's a really like high level clinical approach. Um, I don't necessarily agree with it. I'm just saying that's that's not a clinical approach. What would be their justification? Just, uh, just to, I think, you know, I can't speak for the department of health and I think, you know, they've done a good job with the pharmacist oversight and a lot of the things that they've done. Um, their initial, as far as my understanding, the initial reason for the lack of whole flowers, they don't want patients smoking. Um, they want only vaporizable forms. And so we have ground flour. They were allowed to have ground flour, which we have coming. That's just really difficult to process according to the stipulations that they give for what it has to be. Um, but we do have that coming, which is exciting. Um, Um, And then hopefully we'll be able to talk a little bit more. But I think um, there was just, and this is all conjecture, but I think there was concern over patients focusing on cultivars and focusing less on um, the actual clinical components, maybe necessarily. I I, I I don't really know. I can't answer that definitively for you. (laughs) Maybe there's not a good answer to it. Because to me, it is a clinical, Mm -hmm. you know, implication. Because like you said, the research is there to support Mm -hmm. essential oils and and, And all those things. Yeah. Yeah. Um, So we know that we have different databases. We know we have different kinds of... um, models in different states where you have PharmDs um, and patient care advocates. But I'm curious, especially like, how does a PharmD go about getting training in cannabis? Yeah, that's a really good question. And um, to kind of go back to the article that was mentioned when we said that 20% of these people had medical training from who? Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Yeah. I kind of want to know because um, at least in New York, all clinicians, pharmacists included, and practitioners have to do a continuing education program that has 
been certified by the state. And so when I came in, I'm like, okay, I'm going to do this program and I'm going to know. And I took the program and I was like, wow, I have so many more questions than I started with. And I had to self-educate. I really took months of reading literature, talking, connecting with experts like you, um, joining associations that were linked to experts that, you know, I had read papers and, um, been able to facilitate webinars and things like that. And so education is my biggest passion within the industry because it's really hard to find mm -hmm. really good quality clinical education. So to answer your question about the study, I think it was about um, of the 20% that um, had some sort of training, 10% of those were actually from some sort of university or medical degree program could have been like an online you know, technician program, or or it could be like at a college. But it was so of those people who had a background, only a small sect, or maybe roughly half, uh, would have qualified maybe for that. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So wow. it's it's a challenge, and I think the clinicians that are really differentiating themselves in this space are the ones that are self motivated to really put the time and the work in to like sift through all of these studies, all of these books and figure out, you know, separate the wheat from the chaff, really understand what solid clinical information that can be applied to patient, uh, to patients. And then also, um, you know, being able for clinicians to understand what they're doing. And I think I sort of touched on this earlier, um, about the benefit of having a PharmD in the dispensary, but it's also of benefit to the clinicians because the practitioners that are certifying patients usually have no idea what they're doing either. And so, oh my God. I mean, it's just a fact, you know? If their, their university or their hospital system allow them to even exactly. certify patients. Yeah. And because that's a huge, did you know about that, no, Randy? I'd never heard of it. You, yeah. Um, some hospital systems won't actually allow their physicians who work for them to sign off on medical marijuana applications. Because they're patients. federally funded. Because they're afraid they're going to lose federal funds. The hospital will. Mm -hmm. Yes. So oh. we have major healthcare institutions that aren't like the best of the best who refuse to sign off on medical cannabis, even though if the physician believes that the patient should have that. Mm. And I have seen that firsthand with physicians who are like, I wish I could, I can't. Mm -hmm. And, and, and so they're letting policy impact ethical decisions. Absolutely. Too. And so we'll get a lot of practitioners that are motivated and, but then imagine as a, a doctor, mm -hmm that you give a recommendation to a patient and you're sending them to a dispensary associate, right? As opposed to I'm sending them to a pharmacist who I know, who I have a relationship with, who has clinical knowledge, who can provide me with resources if I need them. Right. And I know will communicate with me because that's what we do. It's called collaborative care. So pharmacists are used yep. to talking to doctors. We're talking to hospitals, social workers, yep. where it's like a huge circle of trust and we all communicate with one another. We know how to do it. We know how to do it effectively. Um, and so there's that level of security that the patient is getting care from both sides instead of just sending them off into ether and hoping, you know, that whoever gets them at the counter knows what they're talking about. Wow. So what percentage of your colleagues knowledge base outside of what they learned in school comes from experience of using and how does that enhance your recommendation or doesn't. I had a vegan cat that was cooking barbecue and I was like, you can't, what, how does a vegan person do ribs? And I was like, nah. And it was, and it reminded me of like the dealer that didn't smoke. And I was like, no, dude, Wait, I don't, know? I don't trust that if you don't, you know, but 
But, you know, Randy, you bring up a great point because in that pilot study that Jehan and I did on mental health clinicians, mm-hmm. we found that those who had more bias and fear against rec- uh against recommending or whatever you want to call it for cannabis were those who had never tried it before. Those who had used uh, cannabis in the past actually were more apt to feel like, hmm, this is very therapeutic. This can be helpful for this condition. And, and Randy, to your point, it actually physicians and pharmacists and pharmacologists used to take the drugs they would prescribe to people. That yeah. was part of it. Um, and it was a practice up until like the 70s. Yes. Like, they used to tell stories at Temple like, oh, yeah, when they were making new opiates, it usually yeah. resulted in someone taking it and then being doubled over the sink. Right. But <laughs> but now they've passed, you know, laws and regulations to prevent that. But that's how um, Raphael Mishulam, isn't that kind of they got into it? They were using is, some of that. That stuff is the legend is yeah. that when it came down to determining is this compound A THC or is compound B THC has his they wife did. made it into, you know, baklava or whatever. And as guests arrive, yeah. they yep. gave them either A or B. And 30 minutes later, they knew what the active ingredient in THC was. Right. Isn't that amazing? Mm-hmm. It's interesting to think about. I mean, obviously, in New York, the only way um, any of our clinicians would have experience is if they have a medical recommendation for it. But I think that kind of brings us back to that pharmacological training, right? Like if you have rheumatoid arthritis, I don't have to inject your medication to know how it's going to affect you and be able to counsel you on the side effects and the outcomes and things like that. So having a really, really thorough and deep understanding of how things work Mm -hmm. in the brain Mm -hmm. allows us to be able to give recommendation without necessarily having experienced it. And that that's a big differentiator. I think, I guess I was asking, uh, Again, just to use a culinary world, could you describe the differences between taste and lettuce if you never tasted them or herbs? I mean, not necessarily, but I don't know that it... It's cri- critical it's in same, your recommendation. Yeah, I, and okay. it, actually, I would say it's probably the result of your field. I mean, you're like you said, your job is to think of the chemical formulation mm-hmm. and how do I treat this condition, not mm-hmm. so much what is the experience mm-hmm. of it. Does that make sense? It does. That, that, that's clever. You know, see, that would be for me just because I'm so interested in, and work with people and their perceptions and how things affect them cognitively, emotionally, and all that. I am looking at it from mm-hmm. that perspective. But to Randy's analogy, you know, would you trust someone on their recommendation to put hot sauce on your burrito? If they had never had hot sauce before, be like, that's should I, I, what's the how's the how's the uh, hot sauce? Should I put that pico de gallo right. on there? You know, you want someone maybe who's experienced <laughs> with chili peppers to right. be like, oh yeah, you'll burn your mouth. Don't. Yeah. <laughs> We're not asking you to come out of the closet, Sasha. <laughs> no, 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 no. I mean, it's it's for me, it's a fascinating conversation because I look at things medically, and yeah. so to my mind, when the doctor says, you know, you have high blood pressure, need to take this, I wouldn't respond with, well, have you taken it? Did it lower your blood pressure it's like no we have science and and evidence that shows why right and we've had that you know even in the therapy world i've had you know uh People say, well, you've never had children. You don't, well, well, I have. So I, I can't say that, but they would say this to our other clinicians. Like, you don't know what I'm t- talking about because you've never had a kid or, mm-hmm. or, you know, you're not, uh, divorced. You don't know what I've gone through or whatever it is. So. Well, I mean, even for you, you counsel patients that have, you know, issues I don't have. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And just because you aren't psychotic doesn't mean that you don't have the skill set. To, to, to manage someone who does. Um, so that's sort of where that clinical expertise, I think, I'm is important. Psychotic. I mean, you could be. I don't know. <laughs> the voices told me I am. <laughs> 
Just kidding. <laughs> so, uh, yeah. So obviously one of the solutions is education. And, you know, through the institute where I work, the International Research Center for Cannabis and Mental Health, you know, we are working on uh, CEUs for different healthcare professionals and also applying for CMEs. But there's really been a crackdown on CMEs being able to be offered. Like a lot of those courses that were available in the past have not been approved. Mm-hmm. But um, but I am doing a CME actually, and I love doing them for doctors, but I'm doing one for Delaware for their physicians. And this is simply going to be on really three things. I kind of feel like it's cannabis triage for clinicians because it's, you know, what are the policies and procedures and regulations for the program for prescribing physicians or recommending physicians, um, you know, the the biological and chemical and physiological processes of the endocannabinoid system. And then really, what are the different products? Well, how are they formulated? What are adverse events, contraindications, and any dose responses to, you know, an amount of cannabis and outcomes? And that's really what the, you know, and that's just a one hour. That's like the mandatory baseline minimum for these physicians to uh, be able to make these cannabis recommendations so patients can access it. So they're going to record it and actually put it on their website. It's going to be like the course for cannabis that's clinicians. Awesome. I, I mean, to be honest, that's my role for Cure Relief. This is what I do every day. I go to doctor's offices. We sit down. We have typically a one-hour meeting, and I go through all of those things. I teach them how to use the website, what the medicine is, the dosage forms available because they don't no. And so it's the pharmacists in the program that are really sort of leading this right. education piece. And it's, it's one-on-one, which is insane. Um, but it's fascinating. There was, um, we had the CWCBE conference recently yeah. and they did a CE track, right? Well, hello. Yes, I was there. We were there. Um, now <laughs> it was the continuing one I- education for mm-hmm. clinicians. So yes. all the doctors could come and mm-hmm. they wanted all the experts, right? Okay. Now we have some amazing pharmacist experts in the field. Um, not to like toot my own horn, but the problem is we work for dispensary companies and that's seen as a conflict of interest. So we're not allowed to provide continuing education credits. And that's one of the issues in the field is that the experts in the field innately are involved in the industry. And so so we aren't allowed to provide some of these resources. You know, that's so weird because it's allowed to do that for pharma. I mean, I I subscribe to a lot of free publications because of my background and how long I've been in it. And I get get magazines from pharmaceutical companies that are literally like I can read an article and then go online and get a CME credit. Mm -hmm. And so I don't understand why I can get CMEs for you know, uh, opiate prescriptions, but I, from uh, Purdue or whatever, but I can't get, you know, insider information about the products from people who are manufacturing. It's crazy. Mm. Holy cow. Yeah. Mm. Is that the trend nationally? Mm -hmm. Oh my God. And what we find, so we have the experts who are doing this daily, not able to provide that information to other people. And I, I will Mm. say, um, the pharmacists are able to get CE credits for other pharmacists. So we, we, they, the pharmacy accrediting association will let us. Yeah. It's the medical associations that are like, no. It's fascinating. Wow. It's fascinating. Wow. So I, I keep getting confused uh, just in my mind, you know, so many confusing. It's all that sinus. I you know. Have oh, God. <laughs> the rise of recreational, um, dispensaries. Does that take away from, the act the accurate effect that 
the medical dispensaries can do for patients can, because people are recreationally wait can i just gorging say, yeah can i say something though as a patient and because mm-hmm. i think this yeah. was important know. for me um when i went to the dispensary yesterday they had something that was uh, a vape pen that automatically told me how long i should stop like when i should quit dosing it vibrated to let me know that i had hit my dose they was it a guilty vape <laughs> put it down you fiend put it down woman put it down yeah no no but it was it was so for someone like like we've talked about my yep. mom on here you know who's right. who's used medical cannabis but for someone who really is trying to do right have this prescribed mm-hmm. in the correct way who is trying to to use this you know the way it's intended that is such a helpful tool because yeah. then they know too much. You know yeah. what I mean? It's easier for them to know that standardized dose, Jay. And and this has been an ongoing issue. Like when Nevada went through with their rec, they didn't set any any cannabis aside for medical cannabis patients. So even though you're a registered patient, you'd think that like, oh, we have these patients. Maybe we should save some. No, it just went first come, first serve, out the door. So the patients weren't getting their And medicine. Oregon, too, it happened yeah. the same way. You said third rec? Uh, oops. No, I missed that. When they went wreck, when they, when they went, okay. Yeah, they like, okay, now medical is wreck. Yep. There was no product set aside yep. for the registered the patients. medical patients. Right. And also, you're not going to see at, at, at an adult use place mm-hmm. those sort of rare products that are really, uh, you know, suppositories aren't something that the average adult consumer is going to request or want. There isn't a huge demand of that. But maybe for, maybe, maybe. You, never know. you never know. You should have asked me last <laughs> night. Jesus. But, uh, you know, I'll give you an example, yeah. like fentanyl yeah. lollipops were invented because <laughs> people who have chemotherapy and severe yeah. pain can't, can't swallow, swallow things, right? Mm. That wasn't something that, oh, healthy people right. suddenly thought was a good idea. That came out of necessity. So right. some of these products that need to be developed, you know, and like, hey, most cannabis companies are run by white males. You're not going to see a lot of women's health products being developed. They're like, ah, oh, what's the point? Rah, 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 you know? So, oh, yes. <laughs> so, you know, I think some of those issues we have in the industry are some are addressed by the recreational market and wow. some are made worse. Like you'll never see it covered by insurance and, and things like that. Right. So we're kind of getting out, running out of time here, but I, I wanted to ask this one question uh, specifically before we left. And obviously the other guys I'm sure have other questions as well. But have there been any studies or any, is there any research that shows us a difference in patient outcomes when there's a model with a PharmD present? Not that I know of. Do you know of any? I'd have to look and that would be a fascinating one to see, to be perfectly honest. Yes. So you guys need to get fast. on that. <laughs> Well, if purely full funded, (laughs) seriously, that is a huge issue because we do know that there are those studies where people are getting incorrect information, you know, from patient care advocates or the bud tenders. And and again, not all of them are like that. I'm not saying that. No, but we could look at outcomes and retention in the program. Yep. Um, to be able to see if there is a difference. Like, I feel like I made a personal connection with my PharmD yesterday when I was in the dispensary mm-hmm. and felt 
like it was something that I really wanted to kind of like, wow, this impress. And, and, and I've been to two in New York because I wanted to kind of, I'm going to like test them. I should never tell anybody what I do though. <laughs> no, don't. I know. I hate that I've done that. Why? I don't get it. Because then they don't tell me stuff. I want to act stupid and I want to learn because when oh. I, you know, even you when could I test had, their, their, yeah, mm-hmm. even when I was in Delaware, it was fascinating to me to sit and listen at dispensaries and to learn and see what the patient care advocates were saying and and what the patient population Mm. was dealing with. So Mm. I love to kind of be that observer. Mm. And, and, and unfortunately, because I came out (laughs) and told them what I did, they, Mm. but I mean, we do that for our dispensary teams as part of our ongoing training. It's not like we train them and then just set them free. We have a whole observation thing and process. So we evaluate them regularly to make sure what they're saying to patients is accurate and they're staying on top of the research and, you know, that everything's sort of up to, up to par. So if, if if I'm off on the stats, you said PharmaD are are present in Five states. Five states. Out of 35. Out of 35 that are legal. One seventh, right? So in the evolution of where, how efficient and how effective the industry is right now, we're not hitting our mark. Mm -mm. I don't think so. Mm -mm. We're not taking advantage of the resources that we could be. And I'm going to even say that to me tells me we're not taking, we're not respecting cannabis as a medicinal product. You're not. Exactly. Right. That's what I was getting at last week also yeah. with, with yep. you know, um, so with the floodgates getting ready to open and recreational, how do we, how does the medical field yeah. maintain its exclusivity based off of this real dialed in knowledge that, you know, working with patients and I getting mean, good? That's a really great question. And I, every state's going to have to figure it out. And then nationally, you know, when hopefully eventually that happens, it's an even bigger issue. And then even this, this separation, right? So the recreational staff should have the same training, yep. right? There should be a screening and process because you could kill somebody. Yep. What are some of the drug-drug interactions? Like what are there any? Yeah, I wish there were more in-depth studies to show uh, definitively. We do know that um, it can increase warfarin levels, which is a blood thinning agent, typically not outside of the therapeutic range, at least not as far as we see, but we do know it affects that. Um, cannabis is processed by the cytochrome uh, enzyme system within the liver, which the large majority of our pharmaceuticals are as well. So there's a lot of potential for interactions, which is where the counseling comes in to talk about the side effects. If you're going to add it to certain things, increase drowsiness, things like that. Uh, we need to tell patients what to expect and why the slow titration is so important. So it's less of a um, outright, you know, don't mix these two or like bad, bad things will happen, but more of an expectation of you're going to feel different using this than someone not on the medication right. that mm. you're on will. And we have to dose you a little differently. Um, it's super nuanced. Yeah. It is. This has been fascinating. Jayhan, do you have any other questions? Um, so I'm going to be, you know, there's lots of people who are doing education and training around the world. I'm going to go talk to a group of docs I've never met that are interested in being one of those recommending physicians in their state. What is one message or resource or talking point, something that I should make sure is in my presentation, in my CME? <laughs> Listen, I will tell you the biggest misunderstanding 
that I get all the time. And that's that you cannot use opioids and cannabis together. And it drives me crazy because yeah. we have pain medicine, uh, pain, pain management practices that are, they're like, okay, you want to use cannabis? All right. I'm going to take you off all your opioids, cold turkey, yeah. and I'll give you cannabis because that's how it works. Right. And no, it's a whole tapering process. They have to come down off the opioids as we increase their cannabis. They may not be able to come completely off right. like 50 to 80% reduction in most cases that we see, right. but it's, it's a whole, process. And there's a, I think the opioid crisis has terrified practitioners and they're mm-hmm. so afraid to try something new because they don't want it to turn into this whole thing. And so instead of taking the time to get the education on how to do it, they just decide it's one or the other and they're yep. putting their patients into full-blown withdrawal risk. and yeah, huge risk. Huge and risk. so that's- I watch it every day because I live on yeah. a block with a clinic and I brought it up last week. Yep. Mm. You know, these old people that have been Using for, and they're on the, they smoke when they're out on the street. Yeah. Well, any other questions, Jayhan? No, I don't think so. Not for today. What Randy? about you, Randy? Nope. Does anybody have a Sudafed? <laughs> I, have, <laughs> I have a little co- Co-Advil back here. That'll work. Uh, I'll do a private consultation with you on cold medicine hey. after it. <laughs> Hey, I'll take well, it. Well, I want to kind of, again, thank you guys for listening today. And thank you especially to my co-host, but more than especially to Dr. Stacia Woodcock. Thank you for so, today's so session. much. All I appreciate right. it, guys. And we'd also like to thank Medicine Square Partners. Their passion is clear. Their approaches are varied, whether it is focusing on creating new technologies related to the endocannabinoid system, creating new medicinal products, conducting lab and translational research all over the globe, educating others, and providing direct patient care. MSP is creating the next generation of health and well-being. For more information, check out our sponsor at ecs4health.com. Thank you for making this show possible. And thanks again to Stacia Woodcock, Farm D extraordinaire, for joining. Outstanding. Great influence. (laughs) Great.